right, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those whom he loves? But you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you again for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather together to worship you. We thank you, Father, for your word, the instructions and commands, the promises and the blessings. We thank you for your steadfast love, and we pray that by your grace you would bless this time in your word, that our eyes and ears would be open to the truth of your word, that you would, by your spirit, speak to us from your word, and that your word would transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Protect us from distraction and error. We pray that you would be glorified in this time, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So for those of you who are familiar with the book of James, you may remember that this letter was written by the half-brother of Jesus. He's also the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, however, introduces himself back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as a God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as half-brother. He's a servant. This is important because James is writing about very hard truths. And he's writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience who are facing the very real possibility of persecution. Several weeks ago, when I preached on James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I mentioned that James understands that his authority to write this letter, this letter that's full of commands and exhortations, is not based on his status as half-brother to Jesus. Instead, James's authority is based on his position as an apostle and his servant status to Christ and to God. James very quickly at the beginning of this book in James chapter 1 points his readers away from himself 
and to God and to Jesus. So who is God that James points to? One way that we can define or explain who God is is to use his attributes, to refer to the words and phrases that explain from God's word who he is. So God is infinite. He is self-existing and without origin. He's the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. God is immutable, meaning he never changes. God is also self-sufficient. He has no needs. He is omnipotent and all-powerful. God is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. God is also omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. God is wise. He is full of perfect wisdom. He is faithful. He is infinitely and unchangingly true. God is also good. He is full of kindness and he is full of goodwill. God is also just. He is infinitely right and unchangeably perfect in everything that he does. God is merciful. He is persistently compassionate. God is gracious, utterly and endlessly inclined to spare the guilty. God is love. He is love in the truest sense of the word. God is holy. In fact, Scripture tells us that he is holy, holy, holy. Just to prove and to show that there is no measure of his holiness. And he is glorious. God is enormously and beautifully infinite. Now many of you may have heard some or even all of these attributes before. But there is another attribute of God that I want to talk about this morning. One that we find referenced in our text. God is impartial. Or we can say, God does not show favoritism. Again, we can also say, as Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says, God shows no partiality. So I have entitled this morning's message, The Sin of Favoritism. And in our passage, James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13, I want us to see three things concerning favoritism or partiality. The two words are interchangeable. This will serve as our outline this morning. So the first thing that we'll see in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is the command in verse 1. And then we'll see that James gives an example of partiality in the church in verses 2 through 4. And then third, the argument against partiality. And we see that in the remainder of our text, verses 5 through 13. So first, the command in verse 1. Excuse me. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, and James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So right off the bat, I want us to notice that James, again, is writing with a pastor's heart. He's writing with love, and it's a great deal of love. Even though he's exhorting his believers, these believers that he writes to, giving them commands. 
the heart behind what James is saying is a heart of love. The use of the phrase, my brothers, translated as brothers and sisters, comes from a place of love and an acknowledgement that James is addressing brothers and sisters in Christ. He is addressing believers. So out of love, James says, my brothers, and here's the command, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The CSB translation of this verse is helpful. It says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What James says in verse 1 is the main point of our text this morning. It's the key verse and everything else that follows this. In verses 2 through through 13 is meant to illustrate and explain what James means when he says, do not show partiality. Don't show favoritism. So the command is pretty evident. But then verse 1 actually goes on to say more, doesn't it? It says, do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, partiality is not compatible with having faith in Jesus. As believers, we should not show favoritism. Uh, That sounds easy, right? I mean, we all know that we should be fair and impartial when we deal with others. Here's the thing, and I've used this example in different settings. Have you ever wondered why there is a warning on a car battery that says, do not drink the battery acid? I mean, seriously, there's a warning, and it's in big, red, bold type. It says, do not drink the battery acid. And the warning then goes on to explain what to do in case you do drink the battery acid. Call a physician immediately. It says in big, bold type. Now, of course, that that does sound funny. Hopefully, it sounds funny to everybody in this room. But here's the sad part. The warning is there because somebody drank the battery acid. It's happened. And so they had to put the warning on there so that other people would see not to drink it. Now, in our passage this morning, even though James doesn't give us very many specifics, we can safely assume that the brothers have shown partiality. There may have been favoritism toward the wealthy, and James's command is that believers cannot do that. Partiality and faith cannot coexist. They are incompatible. James is also not the only one in Scripture that talks about partiality. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, the author says, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And here in the New Testament, James 
is not simply talking about being nice and courteous for the sake of being nice and courteous. Look a little further down in our text in verse 9, James writes, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is reminding his readers and us by extension of the command to show no partiality as they live out their faith in Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ, or in the fellowship of the church. There is no room for favoritism. Why? Because it is a sin. Showing partiality outward, and of course the same is true inwardly, is committing sin. And then just to emphasize this even more, James adds to the end of the command with significance. Look again at verse 1. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. What does James mean by this? James means, actually, John Piper helps us define what James means by this. Uh, He says, quote, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. I'll say that again. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Piper goes on to break it down like this, quote, The infinite beauty of God, and I'm focusing on the manifestations of his character and his worth and his attributes, all of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen, and there are many of them. That's why I use the word manifold. End quote. So this defines the glory of God the Father. So we need to take this a little bit further. Let's take it one more step. We know that Jesus, his son, came down to earth. He became man. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. So we can then say that Jesus is the glory and image of God the Father in human form. And then there's more. John MacArthur explains it this way, quote, and like his father, Jesus showed no favoritism, a virtue that even his enemies acknowledged. It made no difference to Jesus whether the one to whom he spoke or ministered was a wealthy Jewish leader or a common beggar, a virtuous woman or a prostitute, a high priest or a common beggar, a virtuous woman or a prostitute a religious or a re- irreligious person, law-abiding citizen or criminal, handsome or ugly, educated or ignorant. His overriding concern was the condition of the soul. One day, the Apostle John assures believers, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And while we are on earth, we should act just as Jesus did when he was on earth. End quote. As believers, we need to understand and cling to the promises of Scripture that because of God's glory, the glory of God the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and his grace in our lives, we can resist the nature of our flesh. We can resist treating people wrongly because of their appearance, because of their social standing, because of their economic status, because of their height or their weight their skin color, or their education level. The list goes on and on and on. Instead, we are to treat people as fellow image bearers, the way that we want to be treated. 
And in fact, as believers, we ought to treat everyone with the same love and affection that we have already been shown, extending the grace and mercy that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we do not deserve. James's command is pretty straightforward. Show no partiality. Do not show favoritism. And now our example. Look there at our text, and we'll focus on verses 2 through 4. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right here, James is using a word picture to communicate the example of what partiality and favoritism looks like. The details of the example are both vague and that there is no indication that this comes from an actual event, but they're also specific. James lists a gold ring and fine clothing and shabby clothing, and you sit here in a place of honor, and you sit there. I mean, there's specifics there. It's also one sentence. Two through four constitutes one sentence. It's what we refer to as a conditional sentence. In other words, it's an if-then sentence. So look at the text again. Verses two through three are the if statements. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. And then verse 4 is the then. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the setting of this example is in your assembly. Let me just say now that this actually has huge implications for us here this morning. We call this, where we're at right now, this is our Sunday morning gathering or our corporate worship. Another way that we could say that is this is our assembly. The word assembly in the original language means synagogue. It can be translated as place of worship. So look at 2 through 4 again, and and we can say it this way. For if a man with fancy jewelry and fancy clothes walks into your church, and a poor man with rags on also comes in, and if you pay special attention to the man with fancy clothes, but ignore and treat terribly the man with rags on, then have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We have a rich man and a poor man. Maybe they're visiting the assembly. Maybe they're coming to church for the first time. And the example of partiality that James gives highlights the depravity, the radical depravity of the human nature. Treat the rich, fancy guy with honor. Treat the poor, dressed in rags guy like yesterday's trash. Stand over there in the back. Or even worse, sit at my feet. 
that, sh that should cause us to gasp a little bit and say, yeah, there's no way we would treat visitors like that. And, and I will say here and now, as a testament to what I've experienced and witnessed here at Crawford, our members are amazing. As elders, we praise God all the time. Time and time again, we hear reports from visitors that come to this church of the love and acceptance and care that they receive when they visit. I will also say that if you're visiting today, as we said in the opening announcements, please do go out to the gazebo. There will be folks there that would love to get to know you better and talk to you more. So although I do not intend this to be an accusation, we also must confess, even with the best of intentions, our human nature can pull us in a direction that would have us ignoring and treating poorly and harshly others who maybe don't dress like we do. Maybe they don't have the means to dress like we do. Maybe they look differently than we do. Or maybe they speak a different language. We have to be on guard against the slightest thought of favoritism in this sense. After all, James is talking to brothers and sisters. These are believers that he's talking to. And in his example, James says in verse 3 that they gave special attention to the man dressed for success, and then the other, complete and utter disdain and disrespect. Sitting in the back, in this context, was bad. Sitting at somebody's feet was one of the most terrible ways to disrespect someone. All because of the way they dressed, all because of the way that they looked, and their status in society. And we can't miss this. This was the church. Leaders in the church, members of the assembly who are believers, treated the poor man this way in James's example. And then James closes this thought with a rhetorical question in verse 4. This is our then statement. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Distinctions here is translated as past judgment on. And James emphasizes this rhetorical question by claiming that if you show partiality in this way, then you become judges with evil thoughts. The word evil in verse 4 carries the idea of vicious intentions that have a destructive and harmful effect. It's intended to cause injury. This isn't a careless or haphazard mistake that was made. This is intending to cause injury to the person. In this example that James gives, partiality for the rich over the poor, we can even say that it's favoritism based on, on appearances. It, it actually, it doesn't matter how we say it. It's contrary to the character and word of God. And therefore, contrary to the way that be believers should act. Again, back to Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 15 says, You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. James's example is calling his readers to remember what God commands and confirming what should be their approach to treating others. We should all be aware of the sin of favoritism. So up at this point, James has given us the command in verse 1 
He's shown us the example in verses 2 through 4. And for the rest of our time, our third and final point, the argument in verses 5 through 13. James presents a biblical argument for why partiality and favoritism is wrong. Look at our passage again, starting in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As we jump into this argument, I want us to point, I want to point something else. I want us to see something here. As if we needed more evidence for why favoritism is a sin. James gives the command in verse 1. But that's not all he gives. James goes on to give us an example of the sin. And then he doesn't stop there. Over the next nine verses, James presents an argument for why partiality or favoritism is wrong. And he does so with God's character and word in mind. I I might have misled you a little bit a minute ago when I said our third and final point. So that's true. But point three actually breaks down further into three additional points. So instead of saying six, I said three, and then we're going to do three. So I want us to see this argument in three points. The difference is our first point. The disobedience is our second point. And the demand, our third point. So first, the difference. That is, the difference between the sin of favoritism and the character and word of God. The difference between the sin of favoritism and the character and word of God. Look at our text, and we'll focus on verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, I have to say that there is a lot in verses 5 through 7 from a theological perspective. I mean, even if we just look at the first few words, has not God chosen? Now, some of you might be thinking right now, like, wait a minute. God is not partial in his choosing. Well, the answer is, yes, he is not. But then we we might think, well, well, Romans 2.11 says God is not partial. But then Romans 9 says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. 
is that not partiality or favoritism? Still, I would, I would answer no. And I won't just leave it at that. I'm actually going to use John Piper again to help us answer why it is no. He says, quote, impartiality does not mean treating everyone the same. It does mean basing your treatment of others on the right kind of consideration. So God's choice is based on his own hidden wisdom. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He does not base his choices on irrelevant considerations, but on the counsel of his will. He is free to choose whomever he will, and his reasons are never owing to our goodness. How could they be? We are all sinners deserving of death. Yet he chooses freely to save some, end quote. In other words, what Piper helps us to understand there is that we must consider all of God's attributes. And when we do, we can see that even in his choosing, God is unchanging. He is gracious, he is loving, he is merciful and just, and yes, he is still impartial. So James, in presenting his argument, calls on the believer's knowledge of God's sovereign choice to save, and specifically to save those who are poor in the world. In the context of when and where James would have written this letter, all of these Jewish Christians were likely poor. Back in the greeting, again in chapter 1, the believers that James is addressing are referred to as those who are in the dispersion. A reference to the fact that they were uprooted and essentially on the run for their lives. Holding down a job, having a source of income in this scenario, was highly unlikely. And certainly not to the point where they could have been considered wealthy. God has been gracious to them, even in their poor economic status. And we also know that scripture over and over talks about the dangers of being rich. For example, in our Scripture reading this morning, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So James is calling believers to remember that God has always made provisions for the poor. Let me say that again. God has always made provisions for the poor. All throughout the Old Testament, time after time, Israel is encouraged and commanded to treat the poor kindly. And time after time, they are rebuked and admonished when they, do, when they fail to do so. God is concerned for the helpless, the poor and the orphan and the widow. And Jesus perfectly and sinlessly upholds his father's desires to care for the poor and helpless, evidenced all throughout his life and his ministry. So then, as believers, those who have been born again with a God-given new nature, a new heart that desires to glorify God, we are to more and more reflect the love of God that we have received through Jesus. And that must be reflected in our treatment of others, especially our treatment of the poor and the helpless. James actually goes on to say something very interesting in verses 6 through 7. Look there at the text, and James writes, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blasphemed the honorable name by which you were called? 
James is actually putting believers here on blast, as the young folks say. It's like, it's like James is saying, it's bad enough that you treat the poor poorly, but it's even more horrendous that you would treat the poor badly in favor of the rich. The rich ones, or at least from a human perspective, are the ones that are behind many of the hardships that they're facing. It's, it's as though James is reminding them, why would you do this? And not just that, they're also the ones who are blaspheming the name of Jesus, the honorable name by which you were called. I, I, I need to make an important distinction here. James is not talking to rich believers. He is talking about rich, being rich. The idea is that those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel are seemingly going out of their way to treat the poor people badly. This attitude and these actions are against God's word. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. These believers have been welcomed. Believers in all of us have been welcomed into the family of God. We should never take that for granted. And we should always treat people with that in mind. So this is the first point of the argument, the difference, showing that partiality and favoritism towards the rich over the poor goes against the very grain of God's word and character. Our second point is the disobedience. Look there, picking up in verse 8, James writes, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James actually brings reference to the royal law. He does so with an interesting approach in verse 8 is another conditional statement. It starts with if. If you really fulfill the royal law. The royal law is God's law. It's God's commands according to Scripture. Now, there there is no then in the ESV translation, but it is implied. So we could say, if you really fulfill the royal law, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What James is pointing at here is he's showing us that God's royal law is the same as God's commands. We know from Scripture that the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we love God, we obey his commands. Pastor Bert, a couple of weeks ago, actually reminded us that there are only two ways, according to Scripture, or two choices that there are to make. One way is the way of the righteous, or we could say those who obey God's word. The other way is the way of the wicked, or we could say those who do not obey God's word. 
James is saying God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves so we cannot show favoritism. Partiality towards the rich does not mesh with God's commands. If you love your neighbor, James says in verse 8, you do well. It's actually translated, you do excellent. If disobedience is the path that you choose, verse 9 again, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The essence of the disobedience here is in reference to the truth of the whole counsel of Scripture. If you break any of God's law, disobey any part of God's commands, you are guilty of transgression. It's a sin. Guilty is guilty. James uses two of the most severe examples, but he could have chosen any law. And of course, we have to also acknowledge that we are guilty by nature and under the law. We have no chance in and of ourselves. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 13, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It is Christ that redeems us and frees us from the curse of the law. In his argument, James showed us the difference in the disobedience. Disobeying God's word by showing partiality the difference between the two. And now that leads us directly to the demand. Look at James chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now what James does here is he brings us directly to the foot of the cross. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The word judged implies the believer who by God's grace has received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' righteousness has been credited to the believer. And then in saying law of liberty, James is recalling God's gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that because of his finished work on the cross, we can be free from sin and death. One commentator says it this way, quote, the gospel is the law of liberty because it frees those who place their faith in Jesus Christ from the bondage, judgment, and punishment of sin and brings them ultimately to eternal freedom and, and glory. It liberates us sinners from falsehood and deception and from the curse of death and hell. Even more marvelously, It frees us to obey and serve God, to live faithfully and righteously according to his word and by the power of his indwelling spirit. And it frees us to follow our Lord willingly out of love rather than reluctantly out of fear. In every sense, it is the royal law of God, the divine and wondrous law of liberty. End quote. This is the good news. If you're here this morning and want to know more about Jesus and his good news, 
I would ask you to find one of the elders or a friend that you know goes to this church and talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus. And pray, even this morning, that you would be given God's grace, the law of liberty that could transform your life and change the way that you live. It can free you from the bondage of sin and free you to obey God. Friends, the the truth is we are all in need of the good news and God's mercy. We're in need of his grace in our lives. And as those who have put their trust in Christ, how much more should we be willing to show the same to those that come into our lives? To our brothers and sisters, of course we should. To our neighbors, with God's help, we must. We are commanded to show no partiality, and therefore, we are to show love. The same love that we have received. So a little bit earlier, I said that there was three subpoints to our third point, the argument. There's two bonus points. James actually closes with a bit of a bonus here, and it's really helpful to to think about it in light of everything that James just said. First, James gives another warning in verse 13, and then he closes with a promise. So first, the warning. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, all I want to say here is that James is, again, emphasizing the importance of rejecting the sin and specific the sin of partiality, and specifically the sin of favoritism towards the the poor, I mean towards the rich. The life of a believer should be marked by a noticeable love for God and for our neighbor. And that means striving to obey God, to obey his word, enabled by the gospel of God through the life of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our lives as believers cannot be marked by hatred. James makes the point that in light of the mercy that we have received, we ought to be more than willing to extend that same kind of mercy to others, especially those who need it most. And finally, the promise, this promise of grace. At the end of of verse 13, James says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Psalm 51.1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. As we show that kind of mercy, the mercy that has been shown to us, the undeserved mercy of God that has been put on display through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, as we show that type of mercy to others, it does a couple of things. It goes against the very grain of the society and the world, the broken world in which we live. It also gives us a confidence that we can take comfort in the great assurance that James shares. Ultimately, God's mercy will triumph over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to hear from your word. Father, we thank you for the letter that James writes and this passage of scripture that shows that favoritism is a sin. We thank you for showing us the serious nature of 
this sin, the sin of economic partiality. And we thank you for showing us your desire and command that we ought to treat those who are in need with the same compassion and mercy that we have experienced in you. Father, we also confess that the sin of favoritism comes in many different forms. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to see where we are failing to love our neighbors. And we pray that we would be a church who seeks to show your love and mercy without partiality to all. And we ask all this in your son's name.